Good morning once more. Please turn with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 John chapter 3 as we continue along in what is, by all accounts, a very difficult passage. There are a couple of passages in the Bible that really come up over and over and over in theological conversation and debate and even passages that draw denominational lines. And for better or worse, and perhaps a bit of both, we come to one of those texts this morning. We're going to read verses 4 through 10 of 1 John chapter 3 and then walk through it together. John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abide in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The main point of this passage is very similar to the main point of the last section, but from a different angle. That is, children of God live righteously. Children of the devil do not. They do not. This is a, a descriptive passage. There are no imperatives. This is telling us something. This is giving us a snapshot of something following the previous passage. Now, this is a challenging text for a variety of reasons. And a, the largest challenge comes at a level that you actually can't see. Why is that? Well, it's because the ESV has tried to help everybody out by translating, uh, giving a translation that is really more of an interpretation. And to some extent, all translation is interpretation to varying degree. But the ESV has really tried to translate these words and these phrases in a way that attempts to solve a theological problem, a theological tension that is in the text. And I don't even think it offers a solution, the solution that it offers, which we're going to talk about, but you might be able to grasp just by seeing how they translated some of the wording. I don't think it's a particularly strong solution anyway. So why does that matter? It matters because I'm going to have some bullet points up here that are very, very ugly looking. Very ugly looking bullet points because... I want to show you the, the, the way the, the, uh, it's actually worded in the Greek. Of course, it's not going to be Greek. But I'm gonna, I want to show you the literal translation of these things to show you why it actually causes theological tension. Because there's a way to read it the way the ESV has translated it where it's like, okay, kind of what's the, what's the problem here? 
So that is the task as I understand it. Um, I remember in the immediately preceding section, he just got done talking about purifying our lives in light of the hope that lies before us. We are going to encounter one who is pure and holy. And so the process, as we go through that process, we should seek to purify our lives. And now he's going to give a great deal of focus to a crowd that contrasts with, that, with the first crowd, those who are little children. He's going to discuss the nature of those who are of the devil. This is everyone else who isn't children, aren't walking in the light, is of the devil. So talking about this crowd, children, loved by God, see how great. Look at this incredible love that God's lavished on us that we could be called children of God. And now we're turning to a, a different crowd here. This is kind of John's dualism, and he's not going to be talking about sinners just in general, but sinners particularly as they are exemplified by those who went out, and particularly those who are denying Jesus is the Messiah that his audience would have identified. And so verse 29 introduces this section about being born of God, and that those born of God resemble God, a theme we're going to see recur here. And then verse Verses 1 through 3 zoom in to God's incredible love for us as children. But in verse 4, notice the we language cuts off. The we language cuts off. Because now we're not talking about we anymore. We're talking, we're talking about us. We're talking about them. We're talking about them. He's zooming in on a particular kind of person. That's very, very critical for the setup. And here's what we read. And I understand how ugly this is. Everyone who does sin also, or indeed, does lawlessness. And the sin is the lawlessness. That's what the Greek says. And immediately we have to ask an attempt to answer a challenging question. And here's what the question is. What exactly is this lawlessness? What exactly is it? Because it doesn't seem like John is just saying some meaningless tautology, like people who sin, sin. It does seem that he's actually trying to say something meaningful. Like, in addition to sin, there is this, there is this thing, lawlessness. He's not just saying everyone who sins, sins. And the language, poeo, is this do, this language of doing, whoever does sin, which, which the ESV consistently translates practices or makes a practice of. Okay? Now, John has already used this do language in this way, although it's, it kind of seems odd to our ears. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, that we have fellowship with Him? While, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth? Okay? Of course, it's translated practice back there, but it's the same construction. How do you do the truth? Isn't that an odd thing? Well, it means that your actions flow out of what is true, right? It flows out of what is true and what is true in general and what is true particularly about Christ. So we, we already have this here. And this understanding of the, this kind of do, this do language, but also this understanding of lawlessness that we're going to see has wider attestation in the New Testament. This, this word, anomia, anti, against law, so we get lawlessness, 
uh, doesn't ever really refer to specific transgressions of the Mosaic law or some particular infraction of God's moral law, but instead it seems to refer to a kind of spirit, an attitude of rebellion or contempt for God and his authority in general and towards what is righteous that leads to sin and judgment. Okay, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to listen to a few representative examples. This is very, very critical for doing business with this passage. So please, please pay attention. Uh, 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 it is, is worth your time. In Matthew chapter 23, for example, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, you know, the woes to the woe to the Pharisees, he said, So you also, 23, verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lawlessness is within them, and it leads to sinful action. Paul in Romans 6, 19 I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So the point here is that lawlessness is a productive phenomenon. Okay, lawlessness can lead to more lawlessness, whereas righteousness leads to sanctification. Lawlessness is something that produces. Okay, now in the next handful of examples, I want you to listen. The same idea is going to be repeated, but it's going to be particularly articulated in conjunction with the final appearing of Christ and judgment. And what you'll see is that lawlessness is exclusively associated with those living according to the spirit of the age. Okay? It's not a general designation. Not a general designation for sin. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 7, says in verse 22 and 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people who put lawlessness into work. They worked lawlessness. In Matthew 13, 41, lawlessness is set right next to causes of sin. In the parable of the weeds, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Again, an eschatological context. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and doers of lawlessness. Causes of sin and doers of lawlessness. People who are doing lawlessness, putting it into practice. Again, in Matthew 24, 12, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, and because, of law, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because there will be an increase in lawlessness, people's hearts will not demonstrate the same kind of love. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that we have the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness is not just some guy who happens to sin a lot. The man of lawlessness is lawless in virtue of the fact that he opposes God, even setting himself up to be God, is what the text says. Later down in the passage, Paul says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
And finally, if we look at John's writings more specifically, and we heard one of them in the second scripture reading, John does not have a category for believers doing sin at all. Not even one. John, in John's idiom, in his vocabulary, in his categories, John does not have a category for believers doing sin at all. It is a category reserved for those who are slaves to sin. John 8.34. It's a category reserved for those who in Revelation chapter 22 are outside the city gates with the sorcerers, those who practice or do falsehood. Those who do falsehood instead of do the truth. Like believers. Turn back with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 John 1.8. Again, this is critical. 1 John 1.8, he says... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, if we say we do not do sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That do construction is not there. Okay? It's just have and then the noun, sin. Look down with me at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It doesn't say so that you may not do sin. It's just the verb. Similarly, but if anyone does sin, and again, it's not do in the, it's not that word there, it's just the verb. If anyone happens to sin, remember ESV translates the do consistently in John as practice. Okay? If anyone happens to sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. It's just the verb. The construction of doing sin is getting at something very specific and is not just general moral infraction. Okay, so because of what I've sought to demonstrate about how the word is used and what I think will be confirmed as we walk through the passage together, here's what I'm suggesting, and I put it up here because it's a, a kind of a mouthful, but it's important. The contextually defined scope of sin in this passage is sinful action stemming from lawlessness understood as an internal attitude of rebellion and opposition to God's authority that leads to judgment. The contextually defined scope of sin in this passage is not just sin in general, but it's sinful action that stems from lawlessness understood to be an internal attitude of rebellion and opposition to God's authority leading to judgment. And so when he says whoever does when, it, when, when he says whenever, whoever sins does lawlessness, I'm suggesting that he means the same thing we've seen in the rest of the New Testament, that he's making, uh, the, 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 he is making a, a point about a certain kind of sin, sin that has a particular kind of characteristic, you might say, characteristic of those who despise God and his authority, therefore they're workers of lawlessness. You might call it lawless sin, okay? In the second part of verse 6, you see it... I've, I've, I put the definite articles in there, not just to be ugly and, and awkward, but the construction clarifies that this isn't an identity statement that he's making. It's not like water is H2O, like they're, this is exactly identical. He, what he's saying is that the, there is a subspecies of the general category of sinful acts that is lawless sin. There's a subcategory in his thinking of sin that is lawlessness, that stems from lawlessness. So if, if I've lost you, let me try to provide a conceptual linguistic parallel here. Okay? Suppose we're talking about the most honest people that we know. All right? This is 
This is chapter three, one through three. Okay, we're talking about the most honest folks that we know. And then we pan over to talk about politicians and lawmakers in Washington. All right. And so many of them, certainly not all, just to be clear, I don't want to demonize everyone, but so many of them seem to just eat and breathe lies. Talking about the most honest people we know, conversationally pan over to people who eat and breathe lies, and someone says, whoever lies also practices corruption. Lying is corruption. Okay? Yeah, yeah, you know what? Whoever lies, you don't need the, you don't need the also but whoever lies practices corruption or also or indeed practices corruption. Lying is corruption. Lying is corruption. This conceptually and linguistically parallels this verse. And notice that we can wholeheartedly, because of how we set it up here, we can wholeheartedly agree that lying is corruption um, without thinking that Rahab, for example, was practicing corruption when she hid Israelite spies. Or without saying that the parent who says that their small child's crummy little crayon drawing is good when it's not is practicing corruption because they're trying to be an encouraging parent. In other words, what we understand is that we're talking about a particular kind of not telling the truth that stems from corruption and not not telling the truth just in general at all times and in all contexts. We understand that. And so that's what I am suggesting here. This is a particular brand of sin that stems from lawlessness, this attitude of rebellion against God. Okay? All right. That is the framework. Now, with that framework, things become quite a bit easier in the passage. And my argument, as I've argued thus far for how we're to understand this, is going to be confirmed. So, John continues on and he says this. He says... You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So you notice that sins is plural. You know that he is referring to the Son here, Christ. He appeared in order to take away sins. He came to deal with the he came to deal with the problem of sin as it was introduced by the ultimate rebel who will appear later in the passage. He came to rescue. He came to save. And because nothing was wrong with his sacrifice, because he was perfect, in him there was no sin, his sacrifice was able to effectively achieve its purpose. We read about this and we discussed this at length in the Sunday school. If you weren't there, 1 John 2.2, 2, we've already read that he was a propitiation for sin. Yes, he was a, he, because he was a, not just a propitiation, but because he was a propitiation in whom there was no sin, he was able to accomplish its effect. He has the power to take away our sins, to take away the punishment of our wrongdoing by standing in for us and receiving the punishment. That's why he came. You notice appearing thus far in the, in the last couple passages has referred to Christ appearing at the end of time. This time it takes us back to the very beginning. Okay? He appeared for the first time to take away sin. That's the power of the cross. That's what Jesus came to do, to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Now we get another attempt by the ESV to help everyone out that doesn't help anyone. And here's what verse 6 says. 
Everyone who abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him or known him. That's what it actually says. Okay? And you can see what the ESV is trying to do. Say, Tyler, everyone who abides in him does not sin. It's like, what are we supposed to do with that? The in him is clearly a reference to Christ who appeared to take away sin in the last verse. And John says that whoever remains in him or abides in him does not sin. In fact, that everyone who sins, get this, he says, has neither seen him or known him, ever. It's not like they don't see him or know him after they sin. He's saying that they've never seen him or never known him. Now, is John making the claim that anyone who sins has never actually even known God. Not that they just lose their salvation for the moment. Some of you are like, who believes that? The right people, I promise. The, the, the crowd that you haven't had conversations with. It doesn't justify, he's not just saying that if you sin once, all of a sudden, now you're outside of Christ. He's saying you never were in. Is that, is that what he is communicating? The answer is, of course not. John has already multiple times confirmed that his audience understands and practices the truth genuinely and has fellowship with God despite the fact that he calls them to confess their sins and purify themselves. He's made that abundantly clear. And so what, what is going on here? What's going on with this language? Well, what's going on is what we have already discussed at length. That those who abide in Christ and who have seen Him and who know Him don't sin from hard-hearted rebellion against God. He fully expects His audience to sin, but then expect that they will confess their sin and purify themselves in submission to God and His authority and because of His love for them. Okay? He fully expects His audience to sin but he does not expect them to do sin. Technical term. Technical term. He expects them to sin, but not do sin. Okay? It's the difference between someone sinning because of their struggle against the flesh and someone sinning because they oppose God and despise His authority. Who's a hardened rebel. And it's the latter case, it's this specific brand of sin, sin from lawlessness, or lawless sin, you might say, that's being discussed here. And those who abide in Christ don't sin like this. But it is possible, in fact, it's actually inevitable, for those whose hearts are in rebellion against God, even if they say they know God. Okay? Because their hearts are in rebellion against God, they will go right on shamelessly sinning as a result and declare their own standard of righteousness and kind of serve as their own God. So Shanti and I are watching a show on Netflix uh, involving a law firm, and there's this hotshot lawyer who's a part of this, and uh, he wins. He wins a lot of cases, and multiple times, uh, well, I can't even remember how many times he said it now, um, he's like, you, you know, if I sue you or, or you, you take this case to trial, you know I'm going to win. They're like, why? He says, it's just what I do. Winning. It's just what I do. Now what he's saying, he's not saying, I just happen to win things. He's saying something about himself. There's a connection between something about him 
and the results that happen. It's just what he does. Those who are part of the world, okay, those who are lawless, sin is just what they do. John has a category for children of God sinning, but it's not what they do. Make sense? He says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Don't be tricked by anyone, especially these folks who have gone out for you. These secessionists who are denying that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Son of God has come in the flesh, but claiming godliness and righteousness. There's only one way to practice righteousness. Only one way to practice righteousness. Now, I understand it's a, a little bit of a mouthful, but here's the idea. The idea is that the folks who are actually practicing righteousness are doing it in a particular way. What way, you ask? in a way that comports with the righteousness of their heavenly Father and what He's revealed. That's how. Whoever is, so maybe you've, whoever, who, let no one deceive you, whoever is actually practicing righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. There's a false brand of righteousness that you're seeing, John's telling his audience. But the people who are actually practicing righteousness practice righteousness on God's terms, not their own. No matter how much they insist they're righteous, no matter how much they insist they know God, those who are actually practicing righteousness are righteous in their living as He is righteous. And remember, doesn't that take us back to verse 29? Look back with me at verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Okay? There is that family resemblance. Remember we talked about this last time. You look like... You look like your father, John says. So if two people claim to be practicing righteousness, the ones whose actions line up with righteousness as characterized by God, as he has revealed himself, that's the one who's actually practicing righteousness. The other person is a fraud. It doesn't matter how much they insist that they're practicing righteousness or what kind of insight they say that they have received or what kind of voice they heard in their head or whatever. If, someone's if someone isn't being righteous on God's terms as He has revealed Himself, then they're not actually being righteous. They might be doing a bunch of other things, but it's not righteous in this way. That doesn't mean it's not civilly good. That doesn't mean you can't, you can't stop to help someone whose car broke down. That doesn't mean you can't pass a bucket of water to your neighbor whose house burning down uh, if you're an atheist. That's not, that's not what he's saying. But righteousness right here is a particular thing. Is a particular thing. And there's only one way to practice righteousness. And that is a way that aligns with and, and that is on account of the righteousness of the Father. That's the idea. And there's a reason for that. There's a, there's a very good reason for that. And it comes in verse 8. Whoever does sin is of the devil. Whoever does sin is of the devil. This is the evil one from chapter 2 that John's audience has overcome. Remember that? 
right to you because you've overcome the evil one. And now our understanding of sin in conjunction with this verse, the script, the first scripture reading back from Genesis 3, our understanding of this lawlessness and talking about a particular kind of sin born out of rebel hearts takes full theological clarity, doesn't it? Whoever, whoever sins, whoever does sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Sinning from the beginning. Did God really say this? He is the ultimate rebel. He's the ultimate deceiver. He's not just someone who happens to do bad things. He's someone who loves opposing God and therefore does all manner of bad things. It is this devil from the beginning who is described as the father of those who are in the world and those who are in darkness. He's the ultimate example of lawlessness in action. And by the way, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we hear about the man of lawlessness. What do we hear about him? That his coming... And his activity is by the power of Satan. Of course. Of course the devil empowers the man of lawlessness. That's his guy. He's the ultimate lawless one. He's the ultimate opposer of God. He's the ultimate opposer of God. Those who do sin, therefore, they don't merely commit a moral infraction. They resemble their father, the devil, in expressing their rebellion against God and his son. And then John draws the line very clearly, the second half of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what are the works of the devil? The language of from the beginning tips us off to the answer. We're not left with guesswork. And that is the devil's act of rebellion that we read about in the first scripture reading that introduced sin and ruin and lawlessness into mankind and the continuing effects that that has here in the realm of the ruins. He is the God of this age. The Son of Man came to undo. He came to rescue he came to destroy what the devil did and came, in fact, to destroy the devil as well. That's the works of the devil. Christ came to redeem those things, to destroy what was bad, to recreate, to make all things new. And so then with this setup, we get verse 9. Now, verse 9 is generally considered to be the most confusing. But I would suggest if, you, if you're with me thus far, that it, I think it falls into place. It makes sense. And so here's what we read. Again, I've given you the real, the real rendering here. Everyone born of God does not do sin. They are not able or they do not have the power to sin. Okay? And so... When I was in college, there was a, a, West, a Wesleyan kind of circuit guy, perfectionist preacher who came to the University of Alabama, and all he did was camp out right here in this passage. 
And he said, he made it very clear over and over and over that someone who is a Christian cannot sin. Someone who is a Christian cannot sin. It's what John says, so stop trying to make it say what it doesn't mean. And the, the ESV kind of tries to massage the tension away here like it does in the rest of the passage by appealing to the durative aspect of the active indicative. Pre Anyways, the, 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 if we confess our sins, I said that that should be something that keeps on going. It's not just a one-time thing. Purify ourselves, ongoing thing. What they're trying to appeal to by translating all this as continuing on and practicing sinning, they're trying to lay that out. But the problem is Christians do sin over and over. So the translation doesn't help, okay? Because Christians do, in fact, sin in a way that continues until we die and we meet Christ in glory, all right? It is an action that, regrettably and unfortunately, because of the fall, continues to happen. But if you're with me thus far, I think the pieces fall into place. So remember, we return to this critical concept, second time mentioned in the letter, of being born. It was introduced in verse 29. Born. Born of him practicing righteousness. It's made very explicit, by the way, by the language of God's seed in the Greek, sperma. Okay, the, the kind of what the, what the, the conceptual uh, parallel here is very, very obvious. He says, we have because we have been born of God, we cannot sin because his seed abides in us. ESV is rendering, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But because we have been born of God, we've been born again, we aren't in a state of rebellion against God. Okay? We're not in a state of rebellion against him, and it's not possible for us to work lawlessness. Remember the, the Matthew 23, the lawlessness that's within you? Christians don't have the principle of lawlessness in them. They're not, Romans 6, slaves to impurity and slaves to lawlessness. They've been delivered from that. We've been born again, remember? New identity, new family, new mission. New promises, new inheritance. We resemble our Father who's, who is righteous and whose seed abides in us. So we may sin in our weakness, yes, but not from a hardened rebellion, a rebellious heart that characterizes the devil and his children. And that's the kind of sin being highlighted in this passage as we're talking about this group of folks over here. And so while it is true that the second part of this verse doesn't specifically use the do sin construction, says they're not able to sin, surely it means the same thing that it does in the first part of the verse. The second part of the verse is supposed to be an explanation. The second part is supposed to be an explanation for why no one born of God can do sin. Why? He can't do it. It's not that they just don't happen to do it. It's just that they can't. Why? Because they're born of God and His seed abides in them. So they are unable to express lawlessness or lawless sin. Children of God don't do sin 
to use John's construction, because God's seed abides in them and they're born again. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. This is a particular category for John. Doing sin is not something that he has a category for believers doing. Remember, even when he's talking about, if we say that we do not have sin, I write to you so that you do not sin. We don't have this this does sinning or do sin construction. It only refers in his gospel, 1 John, Revelation, to those who are walking in darkness. And then he ties it all together with a theological paternity test in the very last verse. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. How? What makes it evident? Whoever does not do righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, Christians do do things, okay? But what they do is righteousness and truth, okay? What unbelievers do is falsehood and sin. So here's what he's saying. He says, you want to know whose who's daddy someone is? You want to know whose father someone is, despite what they claim to be? Paternity test, right? Here's how you know. Here's how it's evident. Look out. Are they practicing righteousness as prescribed and defined by God? Let me take that out of the abstract. Is it someone who doesn't love his brother or sister in Christ? Because we remember from chapter 2 that John considers that hate. If you're someone who doesn't practice righteousness as God has defined it, and you're someone who doesn't love your brother, you fail the test. Goodbye. Flunk. That person is a child of the devil in John's vocabulary. Those who practice righteousness and love their brothers and sisters of Christ are children of God. And this is a sobering way to think about it. Because everyone is someone's child. So imagine, just imagine with me for a second. Say over here on the room on the, uh, uh, well on your left, because that's where the goats go, right? Final judgment. But say on oh, the room over here is people who have the devil as their father. Right? And then the room over here is the people who have God as their father. The thing is, there is no hallway in the middle for loitering. Right? I just recently went to a game conference and there were rooms on both sides of this huge hall. But what you could do is you could stand around in the center figure out which way that you're going to go, like what you want to go check out. The hallway doesn't exist before God. There's only two rooms. Everyone is in one of the two rooms. And the only designators are that the sign over the door is children of the devil, children of God. No hallway. No lawyering area. Us and them. John is very clear categorically. So, so what I want to do here, I want to zoom out 
I want to zoom back out in a way that I hope ties the passage together and some of the larger theological themes, okay? First is this little series of kind of little flow, flow chart here, whatever. The ch- children of the devil implies that someone has lawless, uh, lawless heart just like their father. Those who are children of the devil implies that they have lawless hearts like their father. That causes them to practice deceit and falsehood. And what John is saying is that just is doing sin on account of rebellion that is stubborn and enduring. Okay? See how that lines up? Children of the devil, lawless hearts like their father. The lawlessness causes them to practice deceit and falsehood. And in John's idiom, that is doing sin. And it is in the exclusive domain of those who are children of the devil. It's not a way to describe the sin of those who are in the light, which is the second flowchart. Children of God, someone's, you know, say they're children of God, that implies they have new hearts from their father. That causes them to practice righteousness and truth. Both sets of people do things. One set does deceit and sin and falsehood. The other one does or practices righteousness and truth. And that just is, when you have children of God who have new hearts from their father that causes them to practice righteousness and truth, what you're going to get out of them is sinning on account of weakness that is confessed and forgiven. Okay? You're going to get sinning on account of weakness that is confessed and forgiven by Christ. And what John is making abundantly clear is that it is not possible for those who know God to do sin or practice sin. God's seed is in them, and by necessity, they do righteousness as He is righteous. Everyone else, their sin exposes them as frauds. Their sin exposes them as frauds. You can't get tomatoes out of a sunflower seed. Certain kind of seed yields a certain kind of fruit. And John's point is, if God's seed abides in you, you cannot do sin, though you may and certainly will fall short and need to repent of your sin. Children of God live righteously. Children of the devil do not. Now, I knew I was going to leave myself because of how I needed to explain that. Almost no time for application. This is a diagnostic passage with no imperatives, but the main point of the passage is very similar to the main point of our passage from uh, from last time, and therefore can be applied similarly. It gives us kind of the contrasted view, but it's the same same main takeaway. And it simply calls us to examine our own hearts and the nature of our own sin before God. Are we rebels who sin out of hardened hearts? Or are we imperfect children who sin out of sinful weakness, 
seeking the forgiveness of Christ? Do we sin or do we practice sin? And perhaps the, the analogy of the two rooms is something for you to think about. I mean, if you had to say, okay, which, which room am, am I in? There's no hallway. There's no hallway in terms of theological categories. And so I'll just implore you to consider this and consider what steps you may need to take. And no matter where you're at in your walk with Christ, maybe you're not even united with Christ, you're walking in darkness, perhaps it's the time to come out. To come out of darkness. Don't resist the call to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so suffer condemnation as you practice lawlessness. Instead, embrace the gospel, be cleansed of all your sin, all your shame, so you can practice righteousness and do the truth. Let's pray. God, we are, are thankful for a Savior who died for us. We are thankful for a new birth that allows us to do righteousness and that makes doing sin impossible. God, we pray that we do not take this grace for granted. Help us to live like the people we have been declared to be and purify ourselves as you are pure. We ask in Jesus' name.